you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 47 this morning. We are in God's providence, continuing on in this series on the first book of the Bible, and especially focusing on the life of the patriarchs, and in a focus sense now, on the lives of Jacob and Joseph. And what God is doing is he brings that patriarchal era to an end. He has settled Jacob, he has settled Israel in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, just to the east. Uh, He will, we know the end of the story, he will bring them out from there many years later um, and take them into the land that he promised to give them and ultimately would bring the Redeemer from them, who would be the Savior of the world. And so as we are looking at that portion of Scripture this morning where we left off last Lord's Day, um, I encourage you to stand if you are able, and we will read together Genesis 47, verses 13 through 31. And I know you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open as we read this portion of God's Word together. Here, Moses records for us in verse 13, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in The land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was very severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourself and your households, and as food for your little ones. May it please my Lord, we... I'm sorry. And they said, you have saved our lives. We don't want to miss that verse. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt as it stands this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth of the land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God truly endures forever. You may be seated. Well, the past three months have been, certainly for me, and I imagine for many of you, um, if we have any sort of uh, feelings of empathy and sympathy and emotions, it has been some of the most frustrating and exhausting times mentally, physically, and even at times spiritually, um, we have had a steady stream of disruption and trials and hardships, whether it is from people who have died uh, from this sickness or people who have lost their jobs or now the violence, the unjust killing of African Americans, the violence in our cities, and, and it's overwhelming. And the internet causes it all to just stream right into your brain so that you can carry the whole weight of the entire world and and have to care about all of it. Or maybe you just shut it off and don't care about any of it. Um, And yet this is the world in which we live. And we are part of this circumstance, whatever God is doing, and we are often tempted to be the agents of figuring out and interpreting every single thing that happens and then telling everybody else what we think about it and then arguing with each other when we don't agree. And that's that's where we're living. And yet, most of us don't stop and, and ask the question, what is God doing? What is God doing? I was reminded this week, as I prepared for this, of how appropriate the hymn, William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders, to perform is with regard to the lives of the patriarchs and with regard to where we are. God moves in a mysterious way. And, and what you may not know about that hymn is that John Newton uh, wrote that hymn with William Cowper in order to help his friend overcome uh, depression and melancholy and suicidal thoughts. And it ended up in a book of hymns that they wrote together called the Alney Hymns. And yet it went under the title Light Out of Darkness originally. Light out of darkness. God's providence is mysterious, and yet he brings light out of darkness. Um, I love especially the last line as we think about this passage this morning and our circumstances. It's so appropriate. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Uh, Anna and I have been hiking lately, different trails on different mountains and different parts of Chattanooga and loving the vast panoramic scenery. And yesterday we went up to Sunset Rock on Lookout Mountain and I had not seen that angle looking to the right, looking over Chattanooga to the right and then looking over Georgia to the left and thinking every panoramic shot is different and you're getting this big picture of this beautiful city. And yet as you look down, you can see cars and you can see small areas and buildings and I'm often tempted to look down in the minutiae and wonder what's happening right there. What's going on in that car right there? What are those little people doing? Way down there. (laughs) Um, 
And then it's comforting to step back and to see a bigger picture. And I think that'll help us as we come to this passage this morning. Um, We need to step back and see the big picture of what God is doing, even as we focus in on the very narrow dealings that he is dealing with at this moment in Jacob's life and at this moment in Joseph's life as he has brought them into the land of Israel. I want to read a quote to you. Sinclair Ferguson, reflecting on this, has very helpfully said, God has both short-term and long-term plans. What God is doing in the life of Joseph is part of a long-term plan that will climax in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's ultimate purpose in everything that he does to bring glory to his son. And as he works in the lives of individuals and in the lives of communities, he may bring to a climax and culmination his long-term purpose that Jesus Christ should be glorified and that Jesus Christ should have the preeminence in the world. And the fascinating thing is this, that the short-term plan of God for our lives always fit into the long-term plan of God for the honor of Christ and frequently reflect that long-term plan. That's the, the big picture. What is God doing? He is intent on bringing glory to his son who is going to come through the line of Jacob and ultimately through Judah And he'll become the savior of the world. And God is working out his purposes in the lives of the patriarchs, even here in this passage, to bring about that end. Now, I want us to consider two things as we look at this passage. Uh, Israel is in the land of Goshen. The famine is getting severe. And first, I want us to consider how God exalts Joseph to save the nations. And then secondly, I want us to consider how God is further blessing Jacob against the background of the famine. God is exalting Joseph to bless the nations, and God is pouring out further blessings on Jacob according to his grace and his promises. Now notice this. Look at verse 13. Um, Moses says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that all the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. We, we, are, we are to feel the pain of this when we read that. Think of all the hardship. Think of all the trials. It's, it, it is one after another after another in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph, all of the injustices, all of the hardships, all of the, all of the devastation, now famine, and now, now not just famine, but more severe famine. Things have gone from bad to worse. And so much so that not just the land of Egypt, but the entire ancient Near East, it, we are to understand this is a global catastrophe. Um, the culminating hardship for Joseph and for Jacob at the end of Jacob's life. And God had exalted Joseph for such a time as this. His dreams had come true. The dreams God gave him when he was a young man that his brothers and his parents would bow down. And now they've bowed down to him, but now the nations are going to come and bow down to him. Everyone is going to come and bow down to Joseph. Um, Joseph is going to be the savior of the world. He's going to feed all the nations. He's going to save all of their lives because God has exalted him for that purpose. Now, there are 14 verses that outline the progression of what Joseph does to save the people. And they are 14 incredibly debated verses. 
Uh, you will find all kinds of opinions. Some people will say, this is Marxism, this is evil. We, we, let me say this this morning. Whatever political convictions you might have, you need to just brush them off the table, and you need to read this with a clear sight to what the text of Scripture is saying. We, we don't want to anachronistically read this through our understanding of constitutionalism or through the lens even of Israel's civil law. This is all before that. So, so just get that off the table. God is exalting Joseph, and Joseph is saving the nations, and, and he is going to do it with great wisdom and great generosity. Now notice, the people come to him. They bring the money. They're out of grain. Remember, Joseph had stored up all the grain. He had made the plan for the seven years of famine. Now the people have, have come to him with the last of their money for, for more grain, and he, gives, he takes their money. He gives them the grain. It's a fair deal, and, um, and then the people come back, and their money is gone. And so they come to Joseph and they say, all we have is livestock and land. And he says, well, give me all your livestock and I'll give you grain in exchange for it. And they give him his livestock and he gives them grain. And, and then ultimately in the third step, it comes down to their land and their persons. And all of it becomes Pharaoh's. And yet the people are given all the provision they need to survive. And then beyond that, which we'll see. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's not. Why didn't you just give them the grain? Well, let me, let me read something to you. John Calvin, and I said earlier in our first service, you know, it's always good when you have a difficult passage of Scripture to, to cite John Calvin. And if you disagree with John Calvin, you can take it up with him. But you can't take it up with him because he's not here. So here's John Calvin on what's going on in this passage. Calvin says, Joseph might be deemed cruel because he does not give bread gratuitously to those who are poor and exhausted. Why doesn't he just give it away? Calvin says, Joseph is transacting the business of another. If during the seven fruitful years he had extorted corn by force from an unwilling people, he would have acted tyrannically. But he doesn't. Calvin says, when the famine was urgent, it was lawful to expose wheat to sale as well as to the rich and to the poor. And then Calvin says, and this is very interesting, he notes that the people came to him. He says, Joseph entered into treaty with them at their own request. They came. They said, let us not die. Give us food. And Joseph very wisely provides for the people when they couldn't have provided for themselves. They, they couldn't have gone and said, well, I'm just going to go work my own land. You couldn't work the land. It was a severe famine. There was no way for them to provide for themselves. This was a way of propagating uh, the economy of Egypt while saving the life of the people. It was God's wisdom and grace. And then Joseph does something remarkable in his work of saving the people. He then gives them seed, and he says to the people, now you go work the land. A fifth of it shall be for Pharaoh and four-fifths shall be for you. 20% for Pharaoh, 80% for you. If you don't like that, by the way, I would love to live in a society where we only pay 20% taxes because we have taxes in everything, gas, food, clothing, federal, social security, and in most states that aren't as great as Tennessee, you have state tax. Taxes, 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 50% probably in America of your money goes to taxation. Here, Joseph's being very reasonable. It's actually more reasonable than other nations. Historians talk about what they expected their people to give, 
Pharaoh would just take 20% and then would give them everything. And they could rebuild, and they could cultivate, and they could regain and prosper. Um, We are meant to see in this a picture of the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus, who in his wisdom and his generosity redeems a people for himself. Now, they become servants. He doesn't subject them to involuntary servitude. We don't want to read this through the lens of the evil of 18th and 19th century oppressive uh, chattel slavery. Um, Exodus 21, God says if a man was found with a kidnapped slave, he should be put to death. That's God. That's not my opinion. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, Man-stealing is wicked and evil, and everyone should agree with that. Um, But the Bible had provisions even in Israel's civil law that if a man was poor and he couldn't provide, he could subject himself voluntarily to one for whom he could work, and he would be treated with dignity and respect, and yet he would be a servant. And, and if things went well for him and his family, and he loved his master, and he loved, and he loved his wife and his children, he could say, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, and he would have his ear pierced at the door, and he would become a voluntary, lifelong servant. And, and Psalm 40 says that that was pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus, who becomes the servant of Yahweh, in order to seek and save the lost that he would become a slave to his father in order to serve us for redemption. And here, Joseph is not treating these people with any sort of tyranny. He is, he is saving their lives. He is providing for them in that system, as it were, and he is pointing us forward to how the Lord Jesus redeems us. Well, there is another section here. There is not just blessing uh, accruing on Pharaoh, Pharaoh is prospering on Egypt, Egypt is prospering on Canaan, Canaan is prospering, Israel is already prospering in Goshen, everyone is now prospering because of Joseph's great wisdom and generosity, and and now there's going to be further blessing on Jacob. Now before I point out this blessing, I want to point this out. Notice the context again in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. That's the background of the blessing. So that if we look at the circumstances, it doesn't look like blessing. It doesn't look like how we would interpret blessing. These are, these are horrific circumstances. And by, by human optics, this is just judgment. This is just punishment. This is just evil. And yet, the big picture is that God is blessing. He's blessing his church, he's blessing the nations, and he's doing it for the honor of the name of his son, ultimately. Um, I love this. If you took verse 13 to verse 31 as we have taken it, as a single division, it opens with the words, the famine was severe in the land, And then notice this, notice verse 27, speak about Israel and Goshen, they gained possessions in it, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Um, When Isaiah came to speak of the blessings of the new covenant, he threw it under the language of the symbol of 
God would make waters burst forth in the wilderness. Here, the severest famine on the globe, and they were fruitful and multiplied. Now, that language comes out of Genesis, doesn't it? It comes from God's original word to uh, our first parents, and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And Adam, as God's prophet, priest, and king, was to take the garden city out and to turn the whole world into the garden and to take dominion of it by being fruitful and cultivating it and, and filling the earth with righteous offsprings, like a vine covering the world with righteous uh, branches, fruit-bearing branches, worshiping God and serving him and reflecting his image. But Adam failed. And we are not meant, when we see there that God is making Jacob and his descendants fruitful and multiplying, we are not meant to see that they are going to fulfill God's ultimate purpose. It's very interesting. You could draw that wrong conclusion. You could say, well, it it was there in Genesis, and now it's here, so let's have as many kids as we can, and we'll take the world over. That's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't. Let me say that emphatically. The Bible does not teach, let's have as many children as we can and take the world over. It doesn't. It teaches that there's a second Adam who's going to come from these people, and by his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, is going to be the true vine of which Israel was just a type, and everyone who trusts in him savingly and is united to him by faith alone will become fruit-bearing branches in the midst of the wilderness of a fallen world. Isn't that awesome? This is reflective of what God is going to do ultimately through Jesus Christ, the true vine, the last Adam, the fruit-bearing vine that now has people all over the face of the earth, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, black and white, all over the face of the earth bearing fruit for his name, doing what Adam failed to do and undoing what Adam did. But the blessing in the, the, blessing in the short term is on Jacob and his family. If We look just at that immediate thing. And then there's another blessing for Jacob, And I think this is really one of the most fascinating um, allusions in the Bible. Notice verse 28. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Now, that's fascinating for two reasons. One, in the last chapter, when he met Pharaoh, he said, few and evil have been the days of my years. So whereas... Joseph will later say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Jacob can't get past, you meant it for evil. Few and evil, hard, painful, discouraging, frustrating, futile have been my days. And now God is going to extend his life another 17 years beyond that, together with his family, in a safe haven where they're being provided for and cared for. There is great compassion, the Lord's compassion to Jacob, who did have an extremely difficult life, that he now extends his life more. And then this is one of the most interesting points. He extends it, Moses says, for 17 years. Now, I think we are meant to understand by that, going back to the beginning of the life of Joseph, that Jacob had 17 years with his beloved son before he was ripped away from him. 
And then he had an entire life where he thought he was dead. And now God has given him back to Jacob. And at the very end of his life, he gives him the same number of years with him that he had with him at the beginning. Absolutely astonishing how kind God is. Jacob had made an idol of Joseph. He didn't deserve him back. And yet God, in his compassion and mercy, restored to Jacob, even in this life, what he thought he had lost, his beloved son. It's absolutely beautiful. The blessing of God, even at the end of Jacob's life. And then there's one more thing. There's one more blessing here. Uh, Joseph has, Jacob has called Joseph together as the time for him has come to die. And notice in verse 29 that he says to Joseph, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burial place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Jacob brings his beloved son near. And you'll remember from last week, perhaps, that at the beginning of chapter 46, God tells Jacob, look, you're going to be reconciled. You're going to be together with Joseph. And not only that, Joseph is going to to close your eyes. He's going to be right there with you at your deathbed. He's going to be there at the very last moment of your life. Your beloved son, not just the 17 years with him, but the last moment with Joseph. And here he is with Joseph, and he calls him, and he tells Joseph to put his hand where the covenant sign would have been and and to, to vouch that he would do for him according to God's promises. What is, what is Jacob doing? Jacob is dying in faith. He's looking for a city that has foundations. He realizes that this is not it. You know, if, if, if you should feel anything from the last three months, it should be this is not it. This is not our home. You should feel that. If you don't feel that, there's something terribly wrong. This is not it. Here, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Right? They lived as pilgrims and strangers, and they sought a better city, a lasting city, whose builder and maker is God. And Jacob, at the end of his life, is seeking that city. He makes Joseph promise him that he's going to bring his bones up. And, and what does that mean? What, what, what difference would it make? He's not going to be there to consciously experience anything in his bones. He's hoping in the resurrection. He knows that God has promised that there is a world beyond this world, that there is, there is a fruitfulness that's going to burst out of this barren world in the resurrection. And that's his ultimate hope. It's not, it's not in making all the circumstances of your life right in the here and now. That's not it. Um, we know that because the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, remarks about Joseph himself when at the end of his life he made his brethren promise that they would carry his bones up when God brought them out of Egypt. His, he, where did he learn that from? He learned it from his father. His father did it before him. He did it by faith. He was looking for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, there are a world of implications for us. I want to ask you just a couple questions as we close this morning. We clearly see from this passage that God's ways are always perfect. 
You know, I, I get the sense from a lot of people, even within the walls of the church, not this church per se, the church, that they don't really believe God's ways are perfect. God's ways were perfect with the famine, and God's ways were perfect with the blessing, and God's ways are perfect through what he does in Jesus Christ. They're perfect. Um, That doesn't mean that we like the misery and the injustices of life. We hate them, and they should weigh on our souls But God's ways are perfect. And the question is, do you really believe that? Not in a fatalistic sense, not in a laissez-faire, everything's going to be okay. That's that's not believing that God's ways are perfect. Trusting him. And then how do we trust him? Well, every single promise God ever made always came true. That's why everything's happening in the lives of the patriarchs. All that blessing is not because they were smarter than the Egyptians. It wasn't because they worked harder than the Egyptians. It wasn't because they were better intrinsically than the Egyptians. They came out of the same sinful lump of clay that you and I have come out of. It was all of grace, and it was all by God's promise. And God did all that blessing because God always fulfills his promises. And so the question is, as we trust him, are we resting in the covenant promises? Are you resting in the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Are you resting in the promise, I will forgive their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more? Are you resting in the promise, I will by no means cast them out? All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will not cast them out but raise them up on the last day. Are you resting in all of the covenant promises of God because they are given to you, if you're a believer, just as they were given to Jacob and to Joseph and every other true descendant of Abraham. And then third, and finally, I want to ask you, as we consider this passage, focusing on God bringing light out of darkness and springs out of the wilderness, um, do you resign yourself to the comfort of that truth, or do you live in desperation at every hardship? Have you resigned yourself to the truth that no matter what the circumstances may be, God has promised to make you fruitful if you are a living branch in Jesus Christ. And so, no matter what difficult circumstances we're in, do we live in desperation, or do we know that God is his own interpreter, and that he's told us he is going to make us fruitful? He's going to prune us, and it's going to hurt. It's not fun. The pruning is painful. The fruit is sweet but he's promised to make us fruitful in the midst of very trying circumstances. I hope that as you consider these questions, if you answer the question, you know, I'm not always doing that, because that would be intellectual and spiritual honesty. To say, you know, I'm not always trusting. I'm not always resigning myself to that. I'm not always living as though I believe that God does everything perfectly. That you would fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews said, and run with endurance the race set before you, running to the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths, and yet these are truths that we so desperately need to hear. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us a people who both seek to bless 
those around us as Joseph blessed Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the nations of Canaan, and yet also, Lord, that we would be hoping in that city that has foundation, whose builder and maker you are. We pray that you would help us to live as pilgrims and strangers on the earth, that you would make us a people that hope in the resurrection, not in what we wish we could have in the here and now. Lord, would you do that by the power of your spirit, through your word, by the saving work of your son on the cross for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.